All right. We are on this topic of the human sexuality report from the PCA, and we have covered statements one through seven along with some preliminary kind of overarching biblical framework things. And we come to one today that sounds a little bit out of place. Statement eight, impeccability. It sounds like one random insertion of one random characteristic of God amidst all these other discussions. Uh, And I think we will be able to see before the evening is over why this uh, is very related to the question of human sexuality and who we are as beings. Now, uh, I would like to remind us uh, in part for our visitors, but also for us, uh, this, this conversation is happening uh, in the context of uh, about five years ago, the Revoice Conference within the PCA. And the question was raised, uh, do we have a statement on these issues that are being brought up? Revoice Conference deals more or most directly with homosexuality. And so these statements were written in the context of that discussion of homosexuality and um, identity, which is actually statements 9 and 10 that have to do with identity and language. And so we may get into those together tonight. We may be, um, we may just spend our time here on impeccability tonight. Um, so this is specifically, uh, especially in the next couple, in the really, frankly, in the remainder of the statements, focused on homosexuality. But we are not trying to limit its application to one sexual sin because uh, sexual sin is uh, numerous it is prevalent far more than we think. It's not just um, those who struggle with homosexuality or transgenderism who need to hear this. This is for all believers who are seeking sanctification, who are seeking to grow in Christ, to put to death all of our immoral sexual desires and, um, and perspectives and definitions. Uh, and, and we could go on and on. So what we're looking at today is Jesus. And I guess that helps when we have said so many times over the last couple weeks, take one look to yourself and ten looks to Christ. Uh, This is one of those looks to Christ. But it also directly ties in with some of these discussions we've been having about, wait, could, could Jesus have been tempted? Was Jesus tempted? Yes, absolutely he was, but not from within. Temptations arose for him from without, and he did not engage in those. That was the definition we had talked about. He did not enter into... Uh, that temptation. He did not let it have any place in who he was. And so then the question arises, could Jesus have even given in to a temptation? Is that possible? And that's the question tonight. And so this report gives us this definition of impeccability. Well, excuse me, this this statement of Christ's impeccability. I'll go ahead and define impeccability for you. It simply means not able to sin. So you may have heard the phrase um, simul justus et peccator. I probably killed that. Uh, just like botched it. Um, I've heard simul justus et peccator is probably the easier way to say it. Um, that means simultaneously just and sinner. This is not a description of Jesus. Because Jesus is not peccator. He is impeccable. <laughs> right, So that's that same root. That's why I use that as an example. We say that we are simultaneously just and sinners, but that root peccator um, means 
sin or sinner or able to sin. And so Jesus in his impeccability is not able to sin. Um, one definition is that Jesus has absolute moral purity within his character and his conduct. And we're going to see some uh, even more definitions here related to the very core of, of Jesus' being, is being unable to sin. So we affirm the impeccability of Christ. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire, nor had the possibility of sinning. I just stop there and say, wow. That's, that's crazy. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire. And I just say, woe is me. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned nor had the possibility of sinning. Christ experienced temptation passively. And again, going back to a couple statements earlier, he never entered into that temptation. Uh, that temptation never took hold uh, internally. Uh, Christ experienced temptation passively in the form of trials and the devil's entreaties, not actively in the form of disordered desires. Christ had only the suffering part of temptation, where we also have the sinning part. Christ had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times. Uh, before we move on to the um, nevertheless clause there, I want to talk for a moment about what it means for Christ to have experienced temptation passively. First of all, just the fact that Jesus did um, very truly and really bump up against sin for 33 years. This is uh, a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, For 33 years he was in immediate contact with sin, yet he was never, to the slightest degree, contaminated. He touched the leper, yet was not defiled, even ceremonially. Just as the rays of the sun shine upon a stagnant pool without being sullied thereby, so Christ was unaffected by the iniquity which surrounded him. This, that quote, that concept, these thoughts show me that Christ, it shows, it, it shows Christ in a much more glorious light then I tend to think of him as the human who, who knows my suffering, who knows, my, who knows temptation, yet did not sin. This paints him in such a powerful light uh, that I think it does a good job for me of redefining some of my go-to thoughts about him. Um, as someone who um, was never, even to the slightest degree, contaminated, it shows how he truly is God in his holiness and how God, even as he takes on humanity, uh, does not take on sin because he cannot come in contact with it. I mean, it makes him, he's the lamb of God, mm -hmm. right? He's the sacrifice, mm -hmm. the only sacrifice that makes him worthy to take on the sin of the world. Right. It is his perfection right. and his sinlessness. It's, it's the sinless Savior mm -hmm. that no one else could um, could come close to being a sacrifice to assuage the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes him worthy of that and that mm -hmm. honor mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and taking that on for all of us. 
yeah. for all yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. And and I, I imagine some would think, oh, well, does that mean he if he could just could he have just come and not tried and he would have been perfect? <laughs> That's a non-question, right? Because there's no there's no level of laziness that Jesus could have engaged with that would have made him. I mean, he that that laziness is not an option for him. He was perfect in his faith, in his faithfulness, in his prayer, in his obedience, in his nearness to God. He was perfect in every way. And so therefore, when you think of it that way, sin never really was an option for one who was so absolutely pure to the point that he can pay for the sins of the world uh, as the spotless lamb without blemish. All right, we have more stuff. Um, Nevertheless, and we can cycle back to some of this here in a moment, but I want to just make sure we get through the the bulk here uh, and then maybe uh, chase some rabbit trails. Nevertheless, Christ endured from without real soul-wrenching temptations. I don't think there's a technical definition for that word soul-wrenching, but I I do think what they're trying to get at in this report is to show us Jesus didn't just have fake shallow temptations. It's not like it was just a show that he just came and it was some kind of act that he, he pretended to be tempted. No, this... Christ really, truly endured from without some real soul-wrenching temptations which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 are crucial uh, in this discussion, and you can see them footnoted down below. We'll read them in a moment. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, I want to really quickly bring up this um, argument. And I, I, when I, I really had fun reading the A.W. Pink um, article here. Uh, I just I was able to skim through some of it. But what he says is, all right, so if this is right in the middle of that second paragraph. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. And someone might say, well, if he was susceptible to suffering and death, what? how do we know he's not susceptible to sin? Let me see if I can uh, find the answer here. I think I know where it is. Here it is. One other objection may perhaps be noted. Though we hesitate to defile these pages by even transcribing the filthy exhalations of the carnal mind. I love that. Just quite an insult. Like, why would you ask such a question? But let's let's go. If the humanity of Christ was, because of its union to his divine person, incapable of sinning, then in view of its being divinely sustained, how could it hunger and thirst, suffer and die? And seeing it did, then why was it incapable of yielding to temptation? So why some parts of humanity, but not the ability to, to give into sin? And I like this answer. It is sufficient to answer, excuse me, it is sufficient to answer to this impious question to point out that while the mediator was commissioned to die, he was not commissioned to sin. What that does is it forces us to remember that it is the will of God and the ordination of God and his orchestration of salvation that is the foundation of our salvation. He goes on, the human nature of Christ was permitted to function freely and normally, hence it wearied and wept, but to sin is not a normal act of human nature. And that's a very crucial um, distinction there. It is not intrinsic to human nature to sin. It is intrinsic to the fallen human nature to sin. 
Jesus did not take on the fallen sinfulness of humanity. He redeemed all of humanity uh, by being sinless. Okay. There, these footnotes are rich. There's one that I want to get into right now. I actually want us to look at footnote 78. Uh, Bob Inc. makes this point in arguing that although Christ's human nature was not fallen, he did assume a weak human nature that in some respects differed from Adam's before the fall. The impeccability of Christ does not mitigate against genuine struggle in the life of Christ. For although real temptation could not come to Jesus from within but only from without, he nevertheless possessed a human nature which dreaded suffering and death. How do you know that? Garden of Gethsemane. Thus, throughout his life, he was tempted in all sorts of ways by Satan, his enemies, and even by his disciples. Remember, get behind me, Satan. And in those temptations, he was bound, fighting as he went, to remain faithful. Jesus was bound to remain faithful, yet he fought as he went. The inability to sin, non posse peccare, was not a matter of coercion, but ethical in nature, and therefore had to be manifested in an ethical manner. That one phrase, non posse peccare, leads me down into this discussion about the fourfold state of man. Anybody heard of this? Fourfold state of man. It's uh, Thomas Boston's uh, distillation of some of Augustine's work. So what he says is there are four states of man. There's the pre-fall man, so Adam and Eve before the fall. There's the post-fall man, which is every human since then. There is the reborn man, which is every believer before we become glorified man. So you've got pre-fall, post-fall, reborn, glorified. Now, pre-fall, think of Adam and Eve, uh, they were able to sin and they were able not to sin. That able not to sin is a good thing. Um, because when you look at what happened when the fall came, they lost that ability not to sin. Every person who's born into sin after the fall is able to sin and is unable not to sin. So let me go ahead and give you the Latin in case you're following along. Uh, Posse peccare means able to sin. Posse non peccare means able not to sin. So that's the pre-fall man. Now that the fall has come, now that um, Adam and Eve have you know, brought the curse of sin, um, we are non posse non peccare. Non posse is not possible non peccare, not to sin. We are bound to sin. We are slaves to sin. We are dead in sin before we are reborn. And so you look at the state of the reborn man. Able to sin, but once again, able not to sin. Why? Because we live in the Spirit. Because now the Spirit is with us. We're no longer defined by sin, so we are able not to sin. We are defined by Christ's righteousness and by his presence with us. So now it is passe non peccare. It's possible not to sin. And then lastly, there's this glorified man. Unable not to sin. When you get to heaven, you're unable 
excuse me, you are able not to sin and you are unable to sin. You are able not to sin and you are unable to sin. When we get to heaven, sin is not an option. Non passe pecare. When we get to heaven. Jesus lived non passe pecare. Able not to sin and unable to sin. And so when we look at the person of Jesus, we get to look at who we will be. Who he's, we, he's invited us into uh, union with him. And so because he uh, died and suffered perfectly and did not sin and rose, we get the credit of all that righteousness and we get then drawn with him into death and we get drawn with him as he is raised into glory. And so because Jesus was non-passe pecare, we too are destined to be non-passe pecare. That's a beautiful truth. And unless you are bound to a savior who is non-passe pecare, you don't have a sure foundation. What are your thoughts on that fourfold state? Uh, so I know guys like T.F. Torrance, you know, believe that like Christ assumed a fallen, a fallen human flesh. Um, but I was reading uh, the wonderful works of God by Bobbing one time, and he was arguing against the uh, immaculate conception of Mary, um, and he tied this kind of into it um, about how because Christ is outside the covenant of works, he doesn't have to assume a fallen flesh because he, he, his person, his person obviously has no beginning or end. Um, and so therefore, like contrary to, you know, that minority position, he doesn't have to assume a, uh, fallen flesh. And I guess my question was, like, do you think, do you think Christ, uh, like not assuming a fallen flesh like naturally flows from him, like being outside of the covenant works. I do think that like that's like just a logical implication, because like the argument for the other side is how could how could Christ be tempted in every way as we are, or for lack of better words, how could Christ redeem us? Like because we have a fallen flesh, you know, when we're in Adam, and so in order for Christ to redeem us, yet there has to be something to be redeemed. And it, that fallen flesh is redeemed and therefore glorified. Um, so I guess I guess the way, you, yeah. I guess my question to you then would be like, do you think that? Yeah. How do you? Like, yeah. How do you? I guess how would you? Yeah. Like, do you think it just naturally flows out of the covenant of works? Like, well, I want. I just curious what your thoughts. Yeah. Are. I don't. I don't think that the fallen human nature is. Um, I don't want to use the word ontologically, but um, I'll go ahead and say like in its essence, it's not a whole new division than humanity. Uh, it is an effect on humanity. Jesus took on humanity yeah. and was able to take on the fullness of humanity without taking on the fallenness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, frankly, I would need some definitions here on the Immaculate Conception, because I, I know there's, there's virgin birth, there's Immaculate Conception, and then there's the... Um, what do they say about Mary? Never, per, yeah, yeah, the, per, yeah, yeah. So, um, is it? Can you go ahead and define that for me again? Basically, um, God allowed Mary 
there, there's, there is differences um, among Catholic theologians um, on this point, but it is dog, it is Catholic dogma, but um, some believe that Mary from God allowed Mary from the time she was born um, because she was dedicated mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. temple mm-hmm. to God. Um, that God allowed Mary to be sinless see, so that when she would bear Thank Christ, you. Christ would not assume a fallen flesh. But, and it's by grace they right. would say that. Um, but yeah, so Bobby was arguing against that, saying that they make they make the, like they make up this um, sort of like division when it's just unnecessary when it, because Christ exists outside of the covenant of works, he's out like he's outside of his person's outside of the fallen man, and so therefore when he assumes a, a human nature. He, he assumes it he, he, only by addition, not subtraction. So he, he can add upon a human nature that is outside of the covenant of works. Yeah, I, I would have to um, delve into what it means that Christ is outside the covenant of works. I'm not at all disagreeing. I just don't know the implications of that. Yeah. I've never thought about that in particular. So I'm not going to give you a direct answer to that one right now. I, I love this question, though. Um, yeah, obviously we don't believe to the immaculate conception. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I'm with Bobbing. We just we just read Bobbing. Um, and, and standing against that, because you're, you're absolutely right, it was the Holy Spirit who came upon her that broke that cycle of um, those who are... Um, you know, able to sin, unable not to sin. Yeah. Jesus does not inherit that inability not to sin yeah. um, because of the Holy Spirit's um, intervention there with the virgin birth. And we were talking last week, I think, um, about how important the virgin birth is for this very thing, uh, that the Lamb of God be spotless and um, without blemish. Um, and, you know, you get to the end of um, sections like this, and I feel like I'm getting to the end of Romans 11, where what does Paul do? He just He just breaks out and says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways. Um, like We praise him that he has done this. Uh, and, and to be fair, some of these questions are beyond uh, the scope of knowing for sure. They, they are and until, we get to, until we get to that, uh, that eternal state. And, uh, and that's good. God has chosen for us not to know some of these things. And what he has shown us is so good and so beautiful and is um, sufficient and so much more. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that question and I, want, I like these types of discussions. So um, we can engage in this even farther. Um, let's, let's read Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, uh, verses 18 and 15. You can turn in your Bibles if you'd like or you can look in the footnotes uh, there we're looking at uh, footnote 76 and 77. And here we see an affirmation of Jesus's identity with all of humanity. And of course, we believe this is without him taking on a fallen nature. Jesus is able to do these things despite um, the fact that he... Um, would not give in to sin and could not give in to sin because it says here, he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, We have to remember who Jesus is as the second person who who made everything and then chose to come and dwell among us. He understands us far better than we understand ourselves. And then also took on this flesh and suffered. He entered into that suffering and death, which he was destined to do, 
Mommy. And is able then to help those who are being tempted. Um, chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And some will say, well, does that mean that... Um, could he really have been tempted as we were if he couldn't have given in? That's, that was my question from the top. Yeah, okay. Um, answer is yes. So the, the, because the, the follow-up question is, well, then why was he tempted? Like how, how was he tempted? What is the point of his temptation if he couldn't have given in? And um, <laughs> some might call this circular argumentation, but the answer that, um, that I like from Pinky says, to prove that he won't give in. Why was he tempted? To prove that he can't. Because in all these ways that he was tempted, he, he did not uh, give in. <laughs> I, see, I see some wheels turning. Um, <laughs> any follow-ups on that? Um, makes sense to me. At the uh, risk of sounding blasphemous. Yeah, watch out for what A.W. Pink is going to call you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pious. Yeah. Is it... He'll be in line. Is there less gravity? <laughs> is there less impressiveness? Like, <clears throat> if I... Uh, I'm getting into chemistry. Um, if I fill a bottle of... Ne- uh, a bottle with neon gas, which is a noble gas, and doesn't react with anything, and it doesn't react with anything, that's like, okay, that's what it does. As opposed to if I drop a thing of sodium in water and it doesn't explode, like, then I start going, like, well, that's weird because sodium is supposed to explode when you drop it in water. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe. That's good. And I don't want to. I don't want to head into heresy in, in this discussion here. Um, may, maybe Jesus isn't proving something out of character. Maybe he's, in fact, the best rep- representation of humanity. Um, maybe, perhaps, his life and his obedience is precisely what humanity ought to be. And there is no surprise in seeing that that's, that's who he is. Um, now, that would, that would assume that Maybe God created us wrong in the fall and all that. But what that would also assume is that God's plan of redemption uh, isn't good. And it is good, according to God's plan of redemption, that um, man was made able to sin and able not to sin. And that the Redeemer was made non posse peccari in order to... um, Again, what it it does is it, it makes us realize choice, our... Our ability to unchoose God or our ability to rebel against God is actually not a noble virtue. It's actually not something that we should look for and long for, and and it should not give value to our decisions that we make for God. When we get to heaven, the decisions that we're going to make are all going to be Godward. Positive, good, holy, righteous, but that is not going to downplay an ounce the beauty of those decisions. And so... Perhaps what we're seeing then in Jesus is not an anomaly, but the telos of humanity and, and who we are to be. Does that kind of...
kind of that, that kind of starts to answer the question without eliminating all the tension. I understand that, but again, frankly, we're going to continue to live with some tensions here, uh, especially when we're talking about a hypostatic union. Right? We haven't even touched on the the nature of, of the fact that there is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Like that is beyond comprehension, and so therefore we should not be surprised that some of these questions are also beyond our, beyond our comprehension. Yeah. It's a great Shylin song. I have Shylin's awesome. Please go listen to his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if y'all have not listened to Shylin, it's it is like B level reformed rap. <laughs> yeah. It's and it is like the most theologically rich rap you'll ever listen to. Yeah. I don't want to expand what you're saying. Like, try to first understand and maybe expand when you're saying that it's less impressive if there's no capability. Jesus, is that kind of what you're saying? It kind of gets into the realm of, like, is it miraculous or not? Like, it's not miraculous that neon doesn't react with anything, whereas it would be miraculous that sodium doesn't react with anything. Okay, sounds like thinking something to do it's miraculous that Jesus walked on yeah. So you'd say, okay, I guess. I'm oh yeah, Stephen is not for a moment trying to dispel like <laughs> no, belief I, in. No, I'm just saying like, so in our Orthodox states, can we expect one or two, or is that just? I just say I'm not just saying God that is walking. That's just Well, the sea is no more in Revelation, so. Uh, <laughs> of course, that I I be, I almost brought that actually to our sermon this morning, um, because it was talking about. God who, he not only split the waters above from the waters below, he then split the waters below and put dry land and made life there. Um, in these other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation stories, all these gods were fighting to, you know, trying to uh, conquer water. And water was a force of darkness and chaos. And so then you get to God who is able to, by the staff of Moses, part the Red Sea and make it dry. And by the foot of the priests, stop the Jordan River and... Jesus is able to walk on the water, uh, and Jesus, able, God is able to redeem even Jonah from the, the depths of the water, and then you get to the end, and the sea is like glass. In one description, and then another description, the sea is no more. This is, therefore, there is no more raging of the enemy. There is no more chaos. There is no more destruction threatened because God is in total control. Does that mean that literally there will be no beach? I'm pretty sure that's more of a theological statement in Revelation than it is a, a literal statement. So, But what I can guarantee you is that if there's no beach, we're going to have something way cooler than a beach. <laughs> yeah, mountains, that's right. That's all you need. Yeah. This question, again, does seem kind of to hinge on the, the, um, your position if Christ was outside the covenant of works. Because Adam, although Adam didn't experience sin... This buys like an inward, necessarily temptation before the fall. You know, you could argue because mm. that would mean that Adam there was there wouldn't be a logical fall in history, right? There was a fall. Adam did choose to eat, and then sin entered, and, and you know we've Adam uh, submerged the whole human race in sin. Um, that's a reality. Um, so I think it's interesting that like Christ is the the, the second Adam, the, the new Adam, and I think in that similar way where. Although Christ experienced experiences temptations outwardly, externally, he, being the better Adam, conquered them. You know, he overthrew them. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so if, I think it's the logical conclusion would be, since Christ has had the covenant of works, he redeems. He, he basically uh, he makes basically uh, 
sort of recapitulates as the new Adam by saying no. But it, it doesn't necessitate it having to be internal. Because right, right, right. Adam was still human before sin entered into his own heart and before he had experienced mm-hmm. internal temptation. Mm-hmm. Are we still under the covenant of works? Um, no. Because I mean, we're under the covenant of grace. Yeah, I think we're under both. And, right. and that reason, for that reason, I would say <clears throat> the covenant of works still stands and the covenant of works is satisfied in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, all the Old Testament expectations of obedience mm-hmm. and of blessing from keeping the law of you know, covenant works, all those um, are satisfied in Christ. Uh, because Jesus also is the, the foundation, the, the, the centerpiece of that covenant of grace that began immediately upon the fall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that covenant of grace where God said, I'm going to send that seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and so um, Jesus then, as the, the power of the covenant of grace, the one in whom we, we trust, uh, is able to meet all those all the satisfaction of the covenant of works, and then therefore we become successful in the covenant of works because we have trusted in Christ by the covenant of grace. Now, for those of you who don't understand, like who who don't quite know the covenant theology frameworks, um, this is something we can slow down and talk about in more detail at another time. We're about we need to wrap up here, but um, does that change? Anything like if if I say what I just say, can I agree with what you said? I would almost, I would almost say I would almost say it doesn't change anything because although humanity was again, although in a sense we are under that covenant of works, in Christ is the substance of the covenant of grace. Uh, the person of Christ can redeem something uh, while, while yet being outside. I see, I see. Okay, and that's where you were trying to relate it to this yes. whole temptation discussion. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if those are apples to apples there. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's... I don't think about that more too, but that's a yeah. great follow-up. Yeah. Um, let us leave it with this. If we did not have a Savior who is as imperishable and undefilable, undefilable as the salvation that he works, um, we have a shaky hope. Uh, I think it's important for us to hold this truth, uh, but with, without we hold that truth and we also hold this uh, understanding that he understands us. And he can sympathize with us. And he knows what temptation is like as both the author and as um, one who is still 100% man to this day and will be forever. Um, He gets what it's like to be tempted. So, um, and that should lead us to say, thank you, Lord. So when we start looking at our um, sexuality, and uh, we move on in this next statement to start looking at who we... How do we identify ourselves? We must identify ourselves with this man. We must first and foremost see that he is um, not just who we wish to be, but who we are now enabled to become like and who we will be like.
the one to whom we are united forever by his grace. So is this, is this responding to the argument that if you're born homosexual that you know God created me that way and uh, I shouldn't be expected not to act in that way. Um, it's uh, it's almost like a that I'm I'm genetically um, predisposed to, to homosexuality and therefore I have no power over those impulses. Yeah. And so why is it a sin? I think that this might be... Is that going down that road? I think this comes from that discussion. I think uh, statements 3, 4, and 5 deal more directly with that as you start looking at original sin and desire and concupiscence. So I think those deal more directly with that argument or in response to that argument. This one kind of comes on the heels of that. Frankly, I don't know the exact connection there. I, I couldn't I just, that. yeah, because well, it, it, he's, it is the, the argument is, is that Christ came, um, and through him, through his spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us, that we are able to, um, overcome our sin, right? We, we have this war of the flesh and the spirit, um, but that is something that, we can have some. We can have victory over, although we may yeah, not yeah. always. Yeah, I think it is helpful in reminding us that Jesus is not an example for us to follow strictly. Right. There's no salvation in that. He is one in whom we trust and in whom we must find our whole being yeah. and our hope. That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. With that, let's pray. <laughs> Thank you, gracious heavenly Father, for the gift of life. We thank you for saving us when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We thank you that he, as the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, is the one who stands in for us. Because there is no one else who could stand in. And I pray that we would um, be taught more and more as we look at these things to lean upon you and see you not as some steel standoffish idol whom we are to revere with our actions, but we would see that even you as the holy God have decided to come and be near and to bring us close and to know us that we might know you, that we might live with you forever. Mm-hmm. Would we remember that that is your heart for your people, always has been this eternal love that you've set on us and we praise you for it. Would it drive us to worship, and would we do that even now as we sing your praise? In Jesus' name, amen.